You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now a word from our sponsor, Netscope. Netscope is a worldwide leader in SASE and Zero Trust. Its unified platform, Netscope One, provides optimized access and zero trust security for people, devices, and data anywhere they go, helping customers reduce risk, accelerate performance, and get unrivaled visibility into any cloud, web, and private application activity. To learn more about how Netscope helps customers be ready for anything on their sassy journey, visit netskope.com. Thanos is back, but as ransomware or a wiper? Cyber agencies in France, Japan, and New Zealand warn of a spike in Imhotet infections. Australian authorities say 186,000 were affected by the breach at Services NSW. Georgia decries cyber espionage at its Lugar lab. COVID-19 cyber espionage efforts have been intense, as have counterintelligence efforts designed to defend labs and supply chains. Rick Howard looks at identity management. Ben Yellen covers tightened surveillance of political advisors. And Anonymous may have a successor. K-pop stands. From the CyberWire studios at Data Tribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Tuesday, September 8th, 2020. And we're back from the Labor Day weekend. Did you miss us? We missed you and hope you enjoyed the holiday, if holiday it was in your neck of the woods. Here are some stories that broke over the long weekend. Early Friday, Palo Alto Network's Unit 42 reported a Thanos campaign against two government organizations, not identified in the report, in the Middle East and North Africa regions. This variant overwrites the master boot record to deliver its demand for $20,000 in Bitcoin, but this is both unusual and, from the attacker's perspective at least, counterproductive. CyberScoop quotes Recorded Future as observing that the attack may be a destructive wiper posing as ransomware. The good news, such as it is, seems to be that the attempt to overwrite the master boot record was bungled, unsuccessful. Bleeping Computer notes that Thanos affiliates were less than fully successful in more traditional June attacks against European targets. French, Japanese, and New Zealand authorities have issued warnings of an increase in email-borne Imhotet campaigns actively working against targets in their countries. Many of the payloads are carried in malicious PDF or, more recently, dock attachments. Some government agencies have themselves been the victims of the botnet-driven campaign, and ZDNet reports that France's cybersecurity agency ANSI yesterday issued a warning that government officers should avoid opening emails with attached doc files. The Sydney Morning Herald has an update on the data breach at Service NSW. 47 compromised employee email accounts were used to obtain personal data of 186,000 customers and staffers. At-risk customers are being notified by mail. The opposition Labour Party has expressed its dissatisfaction with the way the government's handled the affair. Labour's shadow minister for public services, Sophie Kotsis, 
says that Minister for Customer Service Victor Dominello needs to face the public and face the music for the breach. Quote, under Mr. Dominello's watch, cyber criminals have broken into service NSW and may have stolen people's birth certificates, credit card details, medical records, financial information, and even sensitive legal enforcement information, Ms. Katsas said, enumerating the kind of PII believed to have been compromised. Georgian authorities confirm that a cyber attack on the Lugar Lab Biomedical Research Center in Tbilisi took files related to research into the COVID-19 pandemic. The cyber espionage is not yet attributed to anyone, but Georgia's foreign ministry says it's investigating and won't hesitate to name the perpetrator once they've determined who's responsible. Georgian authorities haven't said so, but the country has long been the subject of Moscow's attentions. The Lugar Laboratory, named after former U.S.-U.S. Senator Richard Lugar, represents a joint attempt by the governments of the United States and Georgia to provide safe and even positive uses for the talents of Soviet-era biowar researchers, a significant number of whom had worked in Georgia. Its origins lie essentially in that non-proliferation effort. Work on the lab, which falls under Georgia's National Center for Disease Control and Public Health, began after a 2004 agreement between Washington and Tbilisi, Constructed with the support of U.S. funding, the Lugar Lab became fully operational in 2013. Any American cooperation with a former Soviet republic, indeed with any former Warsaw Pact country, amounts to a burr under Russian saddles, and so it's not surprising that the Lugar Lab should have done so. With Moscow disposed to read the worst intentions in anything Washington does, that's understandable. Less understandable and even less forgivable are the Russian disinformation campaigns that have imputed a Georgian-American conspiracy to deliberately spread infectious diseases. In any case, the Lugar Lab is the sort of organization that would quickly draw the attention of Russian intelligence services. But do remember, it's worth noting that Russian intelligence services amount to the usual suspects and that Georgia's government hasn't yet called them out. While Russia's SVR Foreign Intelligence Service has displayed a close interest in pandemic-related biomedical research, Chinese and Iranian intelligence services have also undertaken considerable efforts to collect intelligence on COVID-19 work. So, the incident at the Luger Lab isn't a one-off. The New York Times reports that COVID-19 research has become a common target for collection by espionage agencies. In this, Chinese services have been particularly active. Their targets have tended to be U.S. research universities. The Times' story makes particular mention of the University of North Carolina, with some effort also made to penetrate biomedical companies. It appears they've had limited success with the companies they've targeted, Gilead Sciences, Novavax, and Moderna, but universities seem to offer a relatively softer target than government or corporate labs. And according to the Times... Beijing has sought to make use of its influence with the World Health Organization to facilitate collection of biomedical intelligence. Russian efforts to steal COVID-19 research have been more focused on the United Kingdom, where Oxford University and its pharmaceutical corporate partner, AstraZeneca, have been targeted by the espionage services. CyberScoop has an account of U.S. efforts to secure vaccine research, Operation Warp Speed is the name that's been given to the American crash effort to produce a vaccine by January, and the program has a significant security component. Formerly known as Security and Assurance, this sub-program 
represents a joint effort among the Defense Digital Service, National Security Agency, FBI, the Department of Homeland Security, and the Department of Health and Human Services. The program provides security advice and assistance to the companies developing the vaccine and to the companies establishing the supply chain that will deliver the 300 million doses Warp Speed intends to produce by the beginning of 2021. And finally, remember Anonymous? Sure, the Guy Fox masks and Arco's syndicalist collective tended to overpromise and underdeliver, especially after some of its more prominent members were arrested. Anyway, there may be a successor movement, K-pop stands, devoted followers of one or more K-pop bands. This phenomenon appears to be a large and loose aggregation, more collection than collective, of K-pop hotheads. The K-pop stands have apparently undertaken spontaneous hacktivism a few times during the past few months of lockdown and disquiet. Forbes points with alarm to what it calls a 100 million strong crowd of hackers and hacktivists, the BTS Army. BTS is a popular K-pop boy band, BTS standing at least sometimes for Burn the Stage, as we remember from the TV and YouTube commercials, and ARMY representing an acronym for Adorable Representative MC for Youths. BTS's hit Dynamite continues at the top of the Hot 100, but whether this represents a serious movement or simply another reason to wish for middle schools everywhere to reopen as soon as possible is unclear. Still, arguably, better than Rick Rolling. Every day, your IAM tech debt grows. Your multi-generational services struggle to work together. Building an identity fabric can fix this. It makes all your identity tooling stronger and allows you to connect any app to any service you want to use. With zero coding, zero maintenance, and zero app downtime. Strata's identity orchestration platform separates the identity logic from your applications, so you can optimize existing IAM tools and manage them in a single control plane. Now, every vendor, standard, and architecture work together. In short, building your identity fabric means you can secure your non-standard apps, keep your complex access policies, retire outdated IDPs, and modernize in record time. So build your fabric with Strata Identity and get rid of tech debt for good. Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your identity priorities, and receive a pair of AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations over 5,000 employees. Connect today at strata.io slash cyberwire. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. And it is always my pleasure to welcome back to the show Rick Howard. He is our chief analyst, also our chief security officer here at the CyberWire, doing his best 
to keep us all out of trouble. Rick, always great to have you back. <laughs> oh, man, that, don't put that pressure on me. <laughs> I know, right? Who needs that? Uh, well, listen, this week on CSO Perspectives, uh, you have gathered up members of the hash table, and you are tackling identity management. Now, to me, that is one of those things that sounds simple on the surface, but the devil is in the details, right? It's absolutely true. And after spending a couple of weeks on this and talking to a bunch of experts about this, it turns out there's like four things that any identity management program should have. And I'll just kind of go through the list, right? So hmm. uh, the first one is you should have a way to federate with your partners, all right? And, and we talked about that before, but it's basically trusting another organization. If they trust you and you trust this user, then they trust that user. So a way to automate that. That's been around for many, many years now. So federation. Mm-hmm. Uh, the second one is you need an ability to give your employees uh, um, to escalate their privilege. It's kind of like the old sudo command in, in the if you're a Unix guy from back in the day, right? Uh, <laughs> right. But, on, but on a grander scale, we need to be able to, Rick doesn't run as an administrator all day long. He runs as a normal user, but he needs a way to uh, get permission to do, you know, administrator type things. So that's another key factor to it. And then uh, the third one is to automatic extra authentication. Okay, this is the typical one where the, you know, the CEO needs to get access to the M&A database, right? And maybe for that particular data set, we want to make extra, uh, we want to take extra care that the CEO is actually who she says she is. So we might throw an additional authentication layer on that, like two-factor uh-huh. or something, right? Right. And then finally, uh, the fourth thing that all identity management programs should have is a way to manage the identities of all your employees throughout their life cycle. All right, because, you know, many companies, you take on different jobs, you get promoted, you move laterally, right? And I was talking to the thinning CISO, uh, Susie Smybert, old friend of mine, uh, out of Canada, and she has a perfect way to describe this. She calls it entitlement accumulation. You have someone that starts a front desk and then they move into a support role and then accounting and HR and they move around, but they retain and accumulate entitlement as they move through the organization with their tenure. And that is especially prevalent with senior leaders because to develop senior leaders, generally they get move around organization. So you have senior leaders with access across a slew of business function just because they've been, you know, developed and grown through the organization. And that's a a high risk if that identity was to be compromised. So there is entitlement accumulation where we don't want to see it happen at times if employee move roles. Uh, But uh, we do regular certification of entitlement, and then we remove a lot of access every single time we go through those exercises. What we've been doing is integrating our IG platform or um, or other tools that manage identity with the system of record for HR. So as a role or anything is changed in our HRI systems, there's automated workflow that trigger entitlement review or change of entitlement in a suite of systems. Not the entirety of our organization, but there's a lot of automation to help us um, not have hands-on keyboard. Okay, so interesting stuff for sure from Susie. Um, You know, one of the things that strikes me here, Rick, is that all the stuff that we've been talking about with identity management, um, how does that interact, how does that cross over with zero trust? Is that something that you and the hash table talked about? 
We did talk about that. And what's interesting is that those two concepts in the, our network defender space really uh, evolved in parallel. You know, we got, if you, if our listeners listened to the last week's episode, I kind of went through a history of identity management. And we really had the tools came into focus where we were using them uh, sometimes in the early 2000s, but they were stable by 2014. Hmm. Now, the idea of zero trust, they were kind of bopping around in the early 2000s too, but really didn't get formalized until John Kindervog wrote the white paper in 2010. But today, uh, even today, all right, that most people struggle with their zero trust program. So it wasn't like we said we needed zero trust, so we needed identity management. That's not what happened. Uh, in the early days, we used identity management uh, as an HR tool, you know, to track employees as they moved around the organization. It wasn't here lately that we realized that identity management is essential to do zero trust. So, but all of us are struggling to get there because they weren't built together in the first place. Now we're trying to kind of scoot them together. Yeah. All right. Well, do check it out. It's CSO Perspectives. It is part of CyberWire Pro. You can find out all about that on our website, thecyberwire.com. Rick Howard, thanks for joining us. Thank you, sir. Are lengthy security reviews pulling attention away from your security program? With the largest network of trust centers, Vanta can help you streamline security reviews to win customer trust, save time, and close deals fast. Proactively demonstrate security by showcasing key resources like your SOC 2 or ISO 27001 and provide real-time evidence for passing controls. And when a security questionnaire is required, Vanta takes the first pass for you. Visit vanta.com slash cyber to take a self-serve tour. That's vanta.com slash cyber. And joining me once again is Ben Yellen. He's from the University of Maryland Center for Health and Homeland Security. Also my co-host over on the Caveat Podcast. Ben, always great to check in with you. Good to be with you, Dave. Uh, interesting story from the Washington Post. This is uh, written by Devlin Barrett. Uh, it's titled, Bar Titans Rules on Surveillance of Political Candidates and Advisors. Uh, some news here from uh, Bill Barr, our Attorney General. Uh, what's going on here, Ben? So this goes back to the Carter Page scandal, or the so-called Russiagate scandal, emanating out of the 2016 election. In that election, uh, the FBI made an application to the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court to uh, track some of the communications of Carter Page, who had been an advisor to the Donald Trump presidential campaign. When uh, the FISA warrant was granted, he was no longer on that campaign. But obviously, this raised concerns about using the FISA process to uh, initiate political investigations against uh, presidential campaigns. Hmm. Um, this controversy grew, particularly when we learned that part of those applications were falsified. Uh, they didn't dot their I's and cross their T's. Uh, there was a lot of missing information and missing context. So what Attorney General Barr is trying to do here is to make sure that that does not happen again. In order for there to be an investigation of a presidential campaign or any advisors, formal or informal, uh, to that campaign, 
officials have to consider warning that person that foreign governments may be targeting them. If uh, the federal government does not do that, the FBI director has to spell out in writing the reasons for not doing so. Uh, Hmm. So these are new checks on the FBI's ability to initiate these investigations without informing uh, those campaigns. So the way at least this theoretically would have worked in 2016 is the FBI would have had to have gone to the Trump campaign and said, hey, we have you know a little bit of information on one of your advisors, Carter Page. He might have connections to the Russian government. We wanted to give you a heads up. Why don't you tell us about it? About it. Give us uh, an explanation. We don't want to start a political investigation if this is not merited, if this is based on, on false information. Hmm. Uh, so this goes into effect immediately. Uh, it is going to be in effect for the 2020 presidential campaign. And I think it, uh, at least in the view of Attorney General Barr, will stop you know, the FBI from pursuing surveillance efforts if it doesn't have all of its ducks in a row. So what's your take on this? Will, will this will this make a difference? Um, how much of this is uh, is good faith, practical stuff? How much of it is, uh, you know, rhetoric and, and political theater? Some of it certainly is political theater. I mean, for one, Carter Page had left the Donald Trump campaign by the time the FBI obtained the warrant. So this memo, it's not clear whether this memo would have actually, or the, the rules put in place here by Attorney General Barr would have stopped that surveillance. Because at hmm. that point, Carter Page was a private citizen. It's also unclear, based on these new regulations, who is potentially defined as an informal advisor to a political candidate. Political candidates have probably hundreds of informal advisors, um, hundreds if not thousands. So is it somebody who's had a discreet communication with that campaign? You know, if, for example, former Vice President Joe Biden called up, you know, President Obama for an informal conversation on campaign advice, would that make, uh, under this new uh, policy, President Obama an official informal advisor to the campaign and therefore not eligible uh, for the type of surveillance practices that took place in 2016? Uh, so I, I don't think they. this has been a perfectly considered new set of regulations. I generally think it's important to avoid either actual political investigations during a presidential campaign or even the appearance of political investigations. I will note, you know, that nothing about the investigation to the Trump campaign had actually been released when people were voting in 2016. That's certainly in contrast to the information that was released about the investigation into former Secretary of State Hillary Clinton's email servers. Hmm. Um but, you know, I think this is a, a valid effort to try and stop our law enforcement agencies from being overzealous and for starting political investigations during, uh, well, we're supposed to be engaged in a, in a small-D democratic process. Hmm. All right. Uh, yeah, interesting development as we uh, certainly uh, wade deep into election season here, right, Ben? Absolutely. Yeah, something that, yeah. that we'll follow going forward. Yeah. All right. Well, Ben Yellen, thanks for joining us. Thank you. And that's the Cyberwire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. And for professionals and cybersecurity leaders who want to stay abreast of this rapidly evolving field, sign up for CyberWire Pro. Save you time, keep you informed, and it's too cool for school. Listen for us on your Alexa smart speaker, too. 
Don't forget to check out the Grumpy Old Geeks podcast where I contribute to a regular segment called Security, Ha. Huh? I join Jason and Brian on their show for a lively discussion of the latest security news every week. You can find Grumpy Old Geeks where all the fine podcasts are listed and check out the Recorded Future podcast, which I also host. The subject there is threat intelligence, and every week we talk to interesting people about timely cybersecurity topics. That's at recordedfuture.com slash podcast. The CyberWire podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing CyberWire team is Elliot Peltzman, Peru Prakash, Stefan Vaziri, Kelsey Bond, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Iben, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow. here. At N2K CyberWire, we're dedicated to continuously improving the quality of the news and commentary on our network. That's why we're inviting you to participate in our 2024 audience survey. It only takes a few minutes and your feedback is invaluable. Plus, you'll have the chance to win a $100 Amazon gift card as a thank you for your time. Head on over to cyberwire.com survey. That's cyberwire.com survey to share your feedback now. And now, a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI... The best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI.